I would like to begin this podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we record and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. All opinions and discussions on the podcast are purely individual experience, so please consult a doctor or medical professional for more information. Welcome to the Shake It Up Show, a podcast in partnership with Shake It Up Australia Foundation for Parkinson's Research, where we speak to people whose lives have been impacted by Parkinson's disease and hear their stories. My name is Amy Louise Ruffle. I'm an actor, comedian, podcaster, and most importantly, a proud Shake It Up Australia ambassador in support of my dad who lives with Parkinson's. My guest today is Bianca Crocker, who will be participating in the Paris Marathon this year in honour of her late father, who lived with Parkinson's. And it's also a very special race because the marathon takes place on their shared birthday, which is unbelievable. Luck, cosmic, I don't know what you want to call that. But Bianca, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Amy. It's, um, it's really exciting to be here. Thanks for having me. I feel like the first place maybe to start is your uh, relationship to running, given that there is this big race coming up. So tell me about that and tell me why Paris. My relationship to running, um, that's even a funny phrase. I would i would still say I'm not a runner, which I probably need to stop saying <laughs> because I am running a lot. Um, I guess I've been running uh you know just for fun I guess or for for health and fitness reasons and personal enjoyment um probably for 10 years or so on and off um not doing usually much more than four or five kilometers um the last few years I've been doing some more 10 kilometer runs uh and a, a few different events like that um which has been good and I've really um really enjoyed Oh, this is really strange to say, but really enjoyed getting to know myself through my running, if that makes sense. Um, especially now as I'm training for the marathon, which we'll touch on in a moment. It's um, I've obviously been spending a lot of time running and I mostly run by myself. Um, so I listen to uh, podcasts. Sometimes I've uh, actually listened to a whole bunch of uh, the, this podcast on my last run the uh, last weekend, which was great. Um, and, or I listen to music or sometimes I listen to an audio book or something like that, or I just plot along by myself with my own thoughts for a while. So, um, I've really actually grown to love that quiet time, so to speak. And that time, especially away from the busyness of life, which everybody probably experiences. Um, so I've really enjoyed that. My, my partner, um, he is a, a runner. He was definitely a runner. He's done about 10 marathons and I don't know how many half marathons he's done in the last 10 years or so of his life. So there was probably a bit of inspiration um, from his efforts. Uh, To answer the question around why Paris, I mean, why not Paris? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we kind of had a running joke, my partner and I, that I was never going to run a marathon because I didn't have any intention of ever running a marathon. Um, And then I don't know, one thing led to another over the last few years and I sort of joked and I said if I ever was to do one, you know, I'd do it not, you know, running around the streets of Melbourne. I'd go somewhere a bit special, maybe like Paris. 
And then I learned that Paris is actually quite a flat course as well, so it's not too hilly, which is um, which is nice. Gives it a bit um, of an easier sort of approach, I guess. Um, and then, yeah, last year we were at a running expo, strangely enough, at the Gold Coast, um, uh, the Gold Coast Marathon Festival, and uh, they had some flyers there about Paris and he sort of joked and said, you know, that's, you know, you said you'd do Paris. And then I was like, yeah, that was a crazy idea. And then we learned that it was on my birthday. Um, and as you mentioned, that's my shared birthday with dad. So, yeah, so I just started thinking about it and it, I kept pushing the idea out of my mind and thinking that's crazy. Why would you do that? Um, and at that time, I the longest I'd run was about 13 kilometres <laughs> uh, in one event. So anyway, yeah, so I kept thinking about it. Um, I couldn't get the thought out of my mind. Um, I talked to my partner about it and I said, you know, what sort of training commitment would I need to make? Um, so we sort of made up a bit of a plan of how we could do that. And I set a few short-term goals for myself last year and I met those goals. And then in about September, we registered and I said, okay, well, get six months to get it all happening. So here we are. Oh I my God. Seven weeks. Seven weeks out. Okay. There's a lot to unpack in that because also the fact that your partners run 10 marathons is truly wild. That means you have a good coach, I guess, inbuilt that's done the training program before. So seven weeks out, how are you feeling? Um, I'm feeling good. Last weekend, I did my first half marathon, which again, I've never done a half marathon when I made the decision to do Paris. Um, but my partner said it's always good to do a couple of, you know, other races or runs, um, events, so to speak, along the way. So we did um, an evening run last week down the Ballerine Peninsula in Victoria. Um, so that was quite nice. And um, I say nice as in it's a nice place. Um, <laughs> but I did pretty good. I had I, I had a target of three hours. Um, I did it in about two hours, 45. So um, I was quite happy with that. I one thing for me, and this is probably, I guess, what I was sort of leading um, or leaning into before when I was saying learn a bit about myself is um, I think when you do the physical training, your body gets used to it, but um, it's also so much of a mental game as well. And running has always been a mental game for me. Even if I was just doing four or five Ks, my brain would be like, oh, you don't have to run anymore. You should just walk now and, you know, <laughs> all those sorts of things. Um so I kind of have to trick my brain a lot into into running. I'm not great at running on a treadmill because it's very easy to just stop and get off. Um, I'd much rather do, you know, an out and back because then you have to come back because you've run that far. Um, anyway, so, yeah, so last weekend did the my first half, was pretty happy with the results, recovered pretty well. It was only a tiny bit sore the next day. Um, so, yeah, I think training and being on track I think is is good. I've still got probably a couple of, so that was 21Ks. Um, a marathon's 42. I probably need to get up to a run of at least 30, maybe 32 Ks before Paris. So um, you don't have to do a, you don't have to do that whole length, but just get a, maybe a four hour activity in uh, sometime in the next few weeks. So there's still a bit of running to be done. <laughs> well, that's the thing. The program, the training itself becomes so like time intensive, obviously labor intensive in the work that you're doing, but it's just finding the time of how, how do I have a window of four hours when everyone's lives are so busy to be able to put aside to do those trainings? Yeah, the training has been, yeah, something that I knew was going to be um, really important to commit to. 
Um, again, my partner runs a lot. He runs probably six days a week, most weeks. Um, uh, I was running about three days a week before, but most of it was like maybe a three or four kilometer on the, you know, one of those days. But um, I said to him, I don't think I could do six. And he's like, no, I think you could do it with force. So I've, um, I do two days during the week and I usually do that um, quite early in the morning before the work day starts. And then uh, we do, I do both Saturday and Sunday. Normally Sunday's the the long run. So most of my Saturday mornings or a good part of Saturday is taken up with running, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially now. So, um, but uh, most, I, I sort of kept it under wraps for a little while, not telling too many people just because I think I didn't want maybe the pressure of people seeing how's it going or, you know, in case I, I don't know, wanted to back out, even though we'd already registered and bought our flights. <laughs> Um, but so, yeah, so it was at Christmas or just around Christmas. I sort of told my family and, um, they're all supportive and in the new year, I sort of told friends and, and people at work more broadly. So everyone's been super, um, you know, supportive and excited for me. So it's good. It's very exciting. And you're on the home stretch now. So I guess, yeah, good luck for the next seven weeks of that. And even the travel to get there and stuff, there's, a, I'm sure a whole program that you have to go through to make sure that you're in, um, as much, race fitness for the actual day but um just committing to the training that's already such an achievement especially given like you said you don't identify as a runner it's not something that you've been doing so to take on a different challenge and force yourself to have to be with your thoughts and do all the training and things like that is already a huge win yeah thanks so much amy thanks thank you now we did allude to it um speaking about your shared birthday with your dad that's your connection to Parkinson's and what we're here to sort of talk about today. So yeah, tell me about your dad and I guess his Parkinson's journey. Um sure so dad um is Richard or Dickie Bird as a lot of um us called him. Um he lived with Parkinson's for about 6 years so he didn't really get a very long journey. Um, I don't know, some people might say that's a nice thing, but, you know, some people would prefer someone to be around for a long time. Um, so he was diagnosed when he was 65. Um, it was a bit of a road to that diagnosis. Um, and I know that's the case for a lot of people. I think, you know, yeah, it was really difficult. He didn't have tremors or anything of those more physical symptoms, a lot of it for dad was cognitive or neuro sort of stuff early on. And interestingly, in the later stages, there were some doctors that um, when he was in hospital that perhaps suggested maybe it was Lewy body dementia as as well as the Parkinson's because there was so much of the cognitive uh, symptoms, I guess, and the cognitive decline. Do you remember so, what those original cognitive cognitive sorry symptoms were like what he first noticed the cognitive stuff was really he his words he would sometimes forget his words he would sometimes confuse things or muddle things up so he was running a business with my mom and and my brother the um the rest of my family worked in that family business and um they you know just little like he'd been running the business but 50 years or something. So he definitely knew what to do, but just little things were getting forgotten and overlooked and, um, you know, emails were not being responded to. And so little bits and pieces like that. Um, Mm -hmm. We found it, I think one thing we noticed, and it maybe wasn't he that noticed it, but maybe mum or myself or my brother noticed that 
he was really um, challenged to follow directions, you know, like as in if you said, oh, can you go to the fridge and take out the tomatoes and chop them up into pieces, like that's a sequential order. He would sort of get that muddled up around Mm -hmm. the order of what to do. That's a very strange example about tomatoes. But anyway, um, yeah, so that that was probably some of the earlier signs. And then physically the shuffle kind of came, like, you know, the feet shuffling, not taking better steps. He described a lot of leg pain. So they were looking at restless leg syndrome and all these other things. Um, and then the other thing was the face masking or whatever, I don't know the medical term for it, but, you know, like really hard to make facial expressions. So that kind of started off quite lightly, but over the course of the time that got that got more pronounced. But, yeah, so we sort of could see physical symptoms in him as well. But if you just met him, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have known that those physical symptoms were there because you didn't know what he used to be like, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So it was, yeah, the, the road to the um, diagnosis was pretty challenging. I mean, in the end, before the diagnosis, his GP ended up putting him on antidepressants and just sort of said, oh, I think it's just, you know, it's in your head type thing, which my dad was the least depressed person. <laughs> um, if anyone was ever going to get depression, it would probably not be, would not have ever been my dad. And I remember I had a really frank conversation with him about it once um, at that time saying, you know, are you you know, you're having negative thoughts or, and, and he, you know, and he wasn't at all. So that was, that was a bit disappointing um, from that perspective. And I know that's probably a challenge in the medical, medical world. Um, generally, there's no solution or maybe it's just in their head type thing. But um, then in the end, the diagnosis came because we kind of just as a family, <laughs> my sister-in-law is, um, is a nurse. So she's wonderful and we kind of just had a conversation and said we need to get someone to look at him and take it a bit serious more seriously so we just took him into into the Epworth in Melbourne and basically just demand like took him through emergency and just demanded that we weren't leaving until someone figured out what was wrong with him we took photos of him from like a year before two years before so they could see just some of those things and anyway and he was in hospital there for a week the movement specialist um neuro neurologist came and um put him on the meds and yeah he basically responded within 24 hours to the parkinson's medicine and then was basically diagnosed on the spot after that so yeah so that was after all that time it's then like quite a quick turnaround so you're saying that once he was actually diagnosed his symptoms improved yeah, he did. Um, it was good. Once he got onto the medicine um, and they got the dose right, and he was um, on a very similar dose for most of that time after that. Like I know a lot of people sometimes have to up their medication. He didn't have his up very much at all over that time. Um, but, yeah, it was still pretty confronting because earlier in that diagnosis journey, he'd actually to a different neurologist who specifically said he didn't have Parkinson's, which that's, you know, that's fine. I guess that's what they thought. But, um, yeah, so it was kind of off the agenda for us. So that was a bit confronting when it came back on. Um, but I think having a diagnosis did allow us to then um, think about what options there are and, and try and help him um, 
you know the best way that we that we could so yes yeah, so the the medication did help his shuffle be less of a shuffle um but didn't really help the cognitive symptoms as much and i think we then did trial a little bit later on um some meds around what they were using for alzheimer's or um that sort of stuff um but that didn't really have a huge um effect in in any benefit for him at that stage did he um, trial any other sort of allied health services to try and help the either cognitive or physical side? I mean, a lot of people do the like boxing or patterning type things to try and help with the like mental dexterity too. Was there anything that your family found was useful? Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't even know about the boxing until I've been listening to this podcast, which um, has only obviously been around for a year or so. So we lost dad four years ago. So that hasn't, that wasn't helpful, that information, <laughs> as in more recently, but hopefully that's good for other people to hear. Um, he did see a physio um, about sort of movement stuff just to try and make sure he was getting the right things. Um, and him um, and my mum, uh, maybe partway through the his six years, they moved, they made the decision to move to a retirement village. Um, so downsized from their home into a village like community, which was probably a really good idea for many reasons. But um, they had a pool on site there, um, an indoor pool. So um, mum used to take him there a couple of times a week and sort of walk up and down. And because um, obviously with the buoyancy and stuff, that's that's really helpful. Um, so that was really good. And, and the other thing, <laughs> the other thing that we did, this was a little bit later on down the track. So the first part of his Parkinson's, I lived interstate still, but then um, I moved back to, to Melbourne, which was which was really actually quite quite nice. I, I wasn't necessarily moving back specifically because of dad, but it was really good to be close with the family and especially those last few years. But my dad's always really loved music, um, not as a musician himself because he's not wasn't not particularly musically talented in that way, but just listening to music, singing a lot of the music, really big Beatles fan um, and loved Paul McCartney. Our My first concert as a 12-year-old was Paul McCartney and Wings um, was like a mandatory family um, outing that we had to go on, which at the time I remember thinking it was really daggy, but um, it, in hindsight was actually a great experience. Um, but so Paul McCartney actually came, not the most recent time, but about eight years ago or whatever it was came out to Australia and he wasn't really sure if he was going to go and his movement getting around was a little bit tricky but in the end I said no this is silly like it's Paul McCartney like you know you should go he's getting old you're getting old who knows when he'll be back so dad and I went to see Paul McCartney and um I was amazed at for a man who was um you know who was starting to find his speech really tricky um, and would often lose words. I was amazed at how he could recall every single lyric of every song that was sung for the two hours that Paul McCartney was on stage. It was, it was, um, yeah, it was a pretty magical evening to be honest. Um, but then after that, I was kept thinking that that was amazing. So I ended up finding a little Parkinson's singing group or choir group or something, whatever they were called. Um, and I used to take Dad to that um, once a week. Um, for a while, which, yeah, that was a bit of nice time that we could spend together. Um, and I, yeah, don't, I, I think it helped. I think it helped because you had to remember the lyrics, learn new lyrics, um, you know, read from the papers. And um, and I think it's just those mouth exercises as well, like singing as you're opening up your mouth and all of that sort of stuff. So, um, but 
he we he enjoyed it so that's probably a really good thing as well well yeah the enjoyment can be enough of a benefit in itself and it's community you're amongst a group so that's a win too but I think like you're saying the actual mechanics of moving your mouth it's a lot of like breath work and projection which is only going to be so beneficial for then your speech as well yeah yeah because his speech in addition to him um sometimes struggling to find the words or losing the words he he obviously his voice also got quiet over the you know the time as as does happen with the muscle um challenges so uh, yeah I do think it probably helped in that way so when they moved into the retirement home obviously like downsizing in itself to a smaller place makes it easier to sort of manage your day-to-day life were there other what other sort of benefits did you find for your dad being in a place like that but also for your mum as the carer did they have a support network there like what were some of those wins of moving to something like that yeah the retirement village um yeah was I think good for so many reasons um one of them was because they were a small place which I think for, for many older people is sometimes beneficial they also then as part of their fees living there there was a gardener and, um, you know, so their front yard could look nice. They didn't have to do it. They had their little courtyard so mum could potter around with some pot plants and stuff in the back, but the rest was maintained. Um, if there were any challenges, there was someone around, you know, just helping those sorts of things. It was still very much independent living, um, but, yeah, that's really important. Um, I think they were always re- they actually a, were really close to a shopping centre so it was just literally a walk. So that was um, a bit different to where they were previously. Um, they would have always had to drive in the car. Um, by the time they moved into the retirement village, dad was no longer driving. Um, he'd gotten lost once or twice, like in, you know, just in literally getting fish and chips and like local, very local things. That was sort of some of the memory stuff that started to get and his cognitive stuff started to affect his memory as it, as it progressed. So um, he made the decision himself one time that he probably shouldn't be driving. Um, so, yeah, so, and but that, I mean, that in itself was quite confronting for dad and all of us because my dad would drive everywhere. He would, you could, you could have probably easily dropped him anywhere in Melbourne with a blindfold and he would have known where he is and been able to work out how to get home. So, so those couple of times that that happened was a bit, um, yeah, a bit challenging for us, but he, yeah, so mum and mum didn't drive a lot. So then mum was sort of, you know, the main driver. Um, but so them living near the shops meant they could just walk there. Um, so they also changed their lifestyle a little bit. Previously, they might go do the grocery shops once a week because they drive there. But then what they started doing was walking to the shops so they'd maybe go two or three times a week, just get a couple of days' worth of things and bring it back. So that was always good because that encouraged him to do more walking and to keep active, So you know, which is always um, a big benefit. Um, there were some social activities that happened there. They have happy hour there um, once a week, so they were able to get down there. And, again, even as Dad um, struggled with his speech, he still Dad was quite social, so he'd still really like being there and, the other people there were really supportive, even if they didn't know my parents that well at that time, they were still, you know, they'd still, you know, have dad sit at the table with them and still talk. And um, yeah, so I think that was really, really good. Um, it's also quite close to where my brother and I live, not that their other place was not, but so we're all quite close, which is really handy. And then, you know, not that we knew this at the time, but I think in hindsight, Um, being in a village has been very good for my mum since dad's no longer been around. Um, 
which that's been obviously a challenge in itself. But uh, I think sometimes about that transition for someone who's been married for, you know, 50 years is basically that how long they were together for to then all of a sudden have to learn to live by yourself. Um, I sometimes used to think if she was in our family home, which is where they were previous to that, um, you know, we had nice neighbours and things, but, you know, in suburbs people just kind of keep to themselves a bit more, whereas in the village she has to go and get her mail from the mail room or, you know, so people she goes and has dinner once a week down there. So there's other people around to sort of have that community, even if they're not, you know, best friends or anything like that. It's still a community of people that can say hello and um, and know that you're there. So there's been those added benefits, I think, um, down the track as well, which have been good. Yeah, like it doesn't make what your mum's gone through any easier, but hopefully it like softens the edges in the sense that she's not as isolated as if they'd still been in that house and there are just incidental ways that you have to interact with people that you know, helps when you're going from such a huge transition, like you said, 50 years where you've always had someone there. And then all of a sudden, yeah, you've spent way more of your life with that person than you haven't. So it's a huge adjustment. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, um, it was a really big adjustment. And we, we lost dad um, at the end of 2019. So, um, you know, we didn't know what was in store for 2020 when COVID came to our shores, but um there were so many times that with all the aged care challenges that were happening at that time and people not being able to see their family. I remember having a conversation with mum that we were probably kind of thankful that, you know, if, if dad, if we had to lose him, that probably was better that he wasn't there through that time. Cause I don't think he would have understood at all what was going on and why we weren't there. Um, but also I think it would have been extremely hard for my mum because when, um, I didn't tell you that bit, sorry, but for the last six months of dad's life, he got really, he got an infection and had to go to hospital and then got very sick and then um, got delirium in the hospital, a couple of bouts of that. So then his cognitive symptoms got a lot worse. Um, So we had to make the decision that it would be best for him to go into care, into aged care. So the last six months um, he was in aged care, which we got a really nice place, not that far from where mum was or where all of us are, but um yeah it would have been really hard for my mum in particular as it you know as I what I know it was for so many people um to to have to do that if he was in there during that period mm-hmm. um so yeah yeah but I think the challenge for mum as well was then that he wasn't there so when we all had lockdowns and, and we're in Melbourne so we had lots of lockdowns um she you know not only was trying to get used to not having dad in her life like physically um she was also spending an enormous amount of time by herself because Mm -hmm. even those community activities in their village weren't happening because of COVID so I think um those challenges for mum I think you know grieving is a is a definite journey I've probably learned that myself but um I think it made it really hard for her for those first couple of years Gosh, yeah. I mean, so much to be dealing with in in that time without the loss of somebody, um, just dealing with the pandemic. So that is a real challenge for the family. How did you guys support each other, I guess, through those last six months to the year that were probably pretty challenging for your dad, but for all of you guys um, witnessing that? And then in the years afterwards, how have you been able to, yeah, I guess, support each other through the grieving process? 
That's a good question. We're a pretty, we're a little family, but we're a pretty tight knit family. Um, so like, yeah, my brother and his wife and we, they have two, I don't have any children, but they've got two children. Um, so they were, the kids were great. Um, they, you know, were really good as my grand, uh, my granddaughter, my dad's granddaughter, my niece in particular would just love spending time with my dad um so any visit that they were doing she would always want to go there and even at the point when he wasn't talking much or or doing much at all or engaging much um you know we were always trying to be there my mum um <laughs> got a little bit sick uh in that period and ended up in hospital <laughs> for a couple of weeks which added another little challenge to the mix but um her biggest concern when she was in hospital was, well, who's looking after dad? Who's visiting him? So we were trying to share all that around. Um, again, I'm really thankful that I that I was back living in Melbourne again because I don't know how that six months would have worked otherwise. But just I think we um, we started a uh, family sort of group message with my mom and um, and the group of us, not the, not the kids, but the rest of us. And um, you know, we're always in touch with each other. And also trying to make sure we were supporting mum. Uh, I would go in to see my dad. I would aim to go and try once, maybe twice a week, um, sometimes near dinner time if I could help out at dinner time with his eating uh, or sometimes on the weekend. He did sleep a lot, which is um, which kind of didn't bother me because I knew that that's what his body needed, like he needed the sleep. So I would, but I just liked to be there. So I would sometimes just go and, like maybe read a book or at the very end he was in a wheelchair because he'd had a couple of falls. So we, like I might take him out just to sit in the sunshine for some fresh air and he'd fall asleep <laughs> after a couple of minutes. Um, I just read my book or read a magazine or something or whatever. Well, a couple of times I would, um, had quite flexible work so I could take my laptop and just do some work there. Um, so, yeah, and but we are a pretty tight-knit little family and interestingly, um, you know, I know some things like this can be pretty stressful and, and not be great for families, but I think it probably strengthened our little group. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, particularly through it. And then, again, those couple of years afterwards, I mean, even, you know, even now we, you know, on on the, the anniversary of his death, we sort of have messages. We did something the first year, but my mum sort of been, uh, one to be like no your dad wouldn't want us to be making a big fuss every year but you know one year we just we were all around so we just had a family dinner or something like that but um I think it's just being able to still talk about him and share the memories and um have a laugh because he was always quite a funny chap and um and you know even he'd have a laugh at himself we we went and played we were a big mini golf family um so we went and played mini golf it was probably only a few weeks before he went into hospital and then kind of it went downhill rel- relatively quickly. I guess over that six months he was in hospital for six weeks and then went into care. And, um, but just before he went into hospital, we went and played mini golf in the city. Um, there was some special mini golf on with the kids and um, my dad played golf his whole life, but he was he was not very good. I mean, <laughs> he'd say that himself though, so I'm not speaking out of turn. But he... Um, he was missing shots left, right and centre on this mini golf course and he would just make jokes and say, it's the parks, it's the parks, you know. <laughs> um, so he was quite um, always happy to have a bit of a laugh at himself, which we try to make sure we keep those memories, you know, and make jokes about that as well. 
Yeah, um, keep his legacy and spirit alive. Very much so, very much so. Do you have, because you said before, like, oh, in hindsight, it would have been good to know about, say, you know, the boxing as a, as a one-off example. Before I let you go, is there any advice that you would give to somebody who has a loved one living with Parkinson's now? It's a hard um, question, I know. <laughs> it's a hard question and it's tricky. And I've actually had a friend who her father got Parkinson's not long after mine and, and she lost her dad last year. And another girlfriend has a friend who has young onset Parkinson's. But I, I think so the the conversation is probably just, you know, learn as much as you can, try and reach out to the support networks that are there and maybe try and find your best way to support someone. Like everybody has a different way. Like I, I quite like music and stuff. So me taking my dad to the singing, you know, classes was a bit of fun for me as well. Um, you know, my brother wasn't interested in doing that at all, which is completely fine. He did other things with my dad, spent other time with him. He'd make him take him to the footy as much as he could um, until dad kind of just sometimes after a while he preferred to watch it from home, but he'd still go and watch the footy with dad or, you know, so they would have their things that they would do. Um, so I think it's about finding what's right for your situation, you as a friend of a person or the carer. And I think the other thing is, I would always probably say is just to think about the carer. Like we, we, we were probably all carers in some instance, but that main person, like in our instance, it was mum. It's a, it's a lot. And, it, you know, I always remind my mum that because I think she had a lot of um, guilt probably around when he went into care because she was his wife and she should be able to do whatever. But I think that that's the biggest thing as well. Don't be afraid to let people help when, when maybe you're not the right person. And I always said to my family that we're the best pe- people or mum's the best person to to love him and we will do that better than nobody else will do that. But in to his care and his medical care at that time, we were not the people in, you know, even when he was in hospital, he had 24-hour care. So mum was never going to be able to do that um, or any of us, you know, that it would have basically probably, yeah, been impossible. So, yeah, so I think... Yeah, might maybe just think about that path and be open to using whatever help is needed. And if that, you know, if that is about using care or, um, you know, whatever that whatever that looks like for your family or for your um, person, then I think that's the best thing. Just have an open mind because it can be very different for lots of people. I think that's incredible advice. I asked the question in the most messy, worst way possible, and you brought it together um, with some really, I think, helpful perspective, especially, yeah, making it individualized to your personal situation, to the person who's living with it rather than do your research, but then yeah, bring it back to what your family needs. So that's amazing parting words to leave us with Bianca. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. No worries, Amy. Thanks so much for having me. Um, And thanks so much for all that you do for Shake It Up. And um, this podcast, I think is a great idea because if it spreads the words of help and, you know, even support and just listening to other people's stories is always is always really good for people I think so thank you so much thanks for listening to today's episode shake it up australia funds groundbreaking australian research that aims to slow stop and cure parkinson's disease and they need your help to support shake it up's vision of a world without parkinson's head to shakeitup.org.au forward slash podcast together we can find a cure